Join us for Captain's Campaign for Cures. If you plan to attend Vive or Hims this year, get a photo with Captain, our lovable service dog, and we will donate to Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation to find cures for childhood cancer. For every person in the photo, we will donate $1 to Alex's Lemonade Stand. All you have to do is find Captain, grab your friends, take a picture, share it on social media, and put the hashtag Captain Lemonade or This Week Health, and we will make that donation for every person who's in that picture. Our thanks to SureTest and CTG for helping us to end childhood cancer. Today on This Week Health. Everyone's talking about AI being a nuclear bomb. You know, he thinks it's going to be accretive, and so do I. It's a fun time to be in healthcare and in, in startups that are focusing on AI. Welcome to Newsday, a This Week Health newsroom show. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a set of channels dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. For five years, we've been making podcasts that amplify great thinking to propel healthcare forward. Special thanks to our Newsday show partners, and we have a lot of them this year, which I am really excited about. Cedar sinai Accelerator, ClearSense, CrowdStrike, Digital Scientists, Optimum Healthcare IT, Pure Storage, SureTest, TauSite, Lumion, and VMware. We appreciate them investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Now, on to the show. All right, it's Newsday, and today I am joined by Laura O'Toole, founder and CEO of SureTest. Laura, welcome to the show. Hey, Bill. Great to see you, as always. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation. We always have great conversations and we have some interesting stories today. It's been a while since I've talked to you. So let's just talk about healthcare in general before we get to some of the stories. I mean, what are you hearing or feeling in healthcare right now? What's, what's the mood amongst, I don't know, potentially clients or people that you're talking to? I think they're still struggling with financial pressures. Certainly we're seeing that in order to get work done, it's got to get done within a budget year. And most healthcare systems are... July and October. So we're starting to really gear up and get busy with some projects getting started. But, you know, generally, I would say, I think the workforce issue seems to be quieting down a little bit. My sense is that, especially a lot of our CIO colleagues have put some, whether they're technologies or processes in place to help their business counterparts figure out how they can maximize their nurse staffing to make sure that they're utilizing their own employees first rather than the high spend on all the travelers. I think that they're sharing practices amongst each other, I'm hearing, and that seems to be getting at least a little bit better for them. Yeah, it was it was not sustainable to have two hundred to $300 an hour overtime rates for any employee, quite frankly. So so yeah, I think organizations have gotten in front of that pretty quickly. We're gonna talk a little bit today about different work situations and whatnot. I'm gonna to go to an article that I read last week and that you picked out of the lineup. So I, yeah. I sent you some articles and this is one, while I was on vacation last week, I read and it really got me thinking. It's a Wall Street Journal article, it was May 29th, and the title is why AI will make our children more lonely. Now, the first topic I think is interesting. I don't think it's overly relevant for us, but it goes into a bunch of topics that are relevant for us, like the workforce and hiring, work-life balance and the future of AI. But I'm gonna to touch on the first one because it's just so freaking interesting to me. Yeah, uh, I agree. 
So interview with Scott Galloway, founder of a bunch of companies, board member of others, business school professor at NYU, outspoken critic of big tech driven society. And he was asked, how will AI change the home and family lives of people in this room? He said, first, you'll get richer, your kids will get lonelier, more depressed. And he talks about this concept of empty calories and the illusion of relationships, the illusion of camaraderie and friendships and social that tech actually gives you. You feel like you have a lot of friends because people are liking your content or swiping right. right or all that stuff. You feel like you're an investor because you're on a trading app and you're, you're essentially, you don't know anything about trading, but you're doing all this crazy stuff. And he's like, that's not trading, that's gambling. And, right. it, and it's an addiction. And he talks about all those things. And he says, we have a series of replacements fueled by technology for relationships, mentorships, the workplace, friendships, mm -hmm. romantic relationships. And in the short term, it sort of fills a void, but it's empty calories. And I think it will end up creating a more depressed group of people. And he said, we're mammals, we're supposed to be around each other. And he worries that there's a cohort, especially of young people that of young men that he thinks are going to essentially check out a society and fill up on those empty calories. And this is the precursor for what do we do in the workplace for this? But I'm curious what your thoughts are just on, on that section alone. Well, it's interesting. I think this article resonated with me many, probably for some of the same reasons it did you and that we both have adult children, right, that are in this space. So I'm like, let me go, let me check this out. I want to take a look at this. There was a few things that he said that were really interesting to me. One, when he talked about how HR is, he's considered a critic to HR, the HR folks give him a hard time in his companies and the people that he deals with because he's one that believes, um, I think he's about remote workforce if you haven't a sick parent or you're sick yourself, but he's all about let's get people back together because that's where relationships happen. They happen at work and the majority of those relationships that are formed are perfectly appropriate and it's a great opportunity for young kids to meet people. So I thought that was an interesting take because you know we're hearing such disparity there where some people are, nope, if you can't have young people being remote, you're not going to be able to hire them. So I thought that was an interesting perspective. And I don't think that we're all thinking enough about just this loss of connectedness that these kids have and really getting good social skills. The other thing that I thought was interesting that he said was, you know, you need to think outside of the box in terms of the people that you employ. Not everybody has to have a college degree. And we get a little uppity saying, well, you know, if you haven't graduated from a four-year school or you haven't gotten your advanced degree, we don't want you. He said, we're missing out on talent that is out in the market. So I thought that was interesting from a human capital perspective. But when he started talking about how a young man, right, has to have a thousand swipes in order to get a cup of coffee, because what's happening is women with AI, you're able to be so discreet about what you want and what you don't want. And it makes it really hard for people to connect and meet people. The other thing that really dawned on me is so many kids in this generation are saying they don't want to have children. Now, I haven't had that conversation with my son. He's a little bit younger, I think, than yours. And yours is married. Mine's not. But I was like, oh, my gosh, does my son even want to have children? I don't want to be called grandma, but I want to be a Mimi or a Lala <laughs> or something, you know? <laughs> oh, man. All right. So you threw out a bunch of this. Stuff. He goes in, into the next section. He goes into what about the workforce? And he talks about this essentially elevating education 
where it's not necessary in a lot of these roles. And I think that's a that's an important distinction. When I graduated from college, my senior year, I think my tuition, not room and board, but tuition was $15,000. Fast forward, I get that phone call every year. Hey, this is a student from your former college. Just want to know if you're going to give money. Right. And so I, I just asked him the question, how much is your tuition this year? And so the same college I went to is $40,000 for tuition, 15 to $40,000. And I'm like, okay, why is that? They don't have any more land. I mean, they have put up some buildings and that kind of stuff, but they're raising separate money for that. I mean, it's gotten untenable. And I was just on vacation. I was with my son and we were talking about education. And I'm like, when your kids go to college, how much do you think it's going to cost? And he's like, well, at this rate, it's going to be $100,000 a year per kid. And there are some colleges in the U.S. that are $100,000 oh, per kid per year. Yeah. And you're like, that can't be sustainable. And part of that's on us as employers looking out and saying, hey, what roles do we have that don't require people to go $400,000 in debt in order to do the job? That's part of it. I thought that was interesting. The one thing I do want to talk to you about is he says he's a big fan of remote work, as you said, for caregivers, both ends, for children so mm -hmm. that women don't get disconnected from the workforce or men for that matter, whoever's staying home with the child and for adult, for senior care. And we all have that situation at some point in our lives where we're caring for our parents. And he said he thinks there should be dispensation for that. But he goes on to talk about a special group he says, but for the people under the age of 40, I think the office is a feature, not a bug. Yeah. And that it's a fantastic place to find friends, mentors, and mates. And we don't like to talk about it, but uh, one out of three relationships begins in the workplace. This is where HR, he's an HR nightmare because yeah. he's essentially saying, no, I'm okay if people, they go out on yeah. dates and they meet each other there because where else are they going to meet if they're working 12-hour days? than at work. And this idea of mentors, I think, is being lost in this environment. I I remember my mentoring relationships with my staff and people who have asked me for mentoring relationships. It's a lot of serendipity. It's a lot of walking around a conference hall or walking down the hall or just having conversations or introducing them to people that they wouldn't normally meet and having them sit in on conversations I was having with somebody and they were just, they got to see, oh, that's how that interaction happens, or that's that's how you deal with a vendor in that situation and that kind of stuff. That kind of mentoring, I think, is being lost in the name of, oh my gosh, we're not going to be able to hire them. And I like the fact that he says the office is a feature, not a bug in this system. He's bending the paper here. It's definitely different than yeah. what we're currently thinking. My company is completely remote. Your company is mostly remote as well? Completely remote. I mean, with the exception of some of our back office folks, but even they only go get together once a week when they have to look at certain things. We're all remote. How does mentoring occur? I mean, let's just bounce this back and forth. I'm not going to put yeah. you on the spot, but that's okay. how do we make sure that mentoring is still occurring for those people? I mean, this is one of the reasons Jamie Dimon gives, one of the primary reasons that mm -hmm. he gives that Chase is coming back into the office. He's like, look, they can't learn to trade unless they're at the elbow with another trader. They can't learn to do these things unless they're at the elbow with somebody else. So I, he goes, I have no problems asking people to come back in the office. And if they don't, if they're like, look, others, there's other places I can go work, then they should go work there. But 
there's going to be a group of people that realizes what we offer is a superior training ground for their future. And they're going to come work here so they can stand next to somebody who has actually done the work. Yep, absolutely. I mean, my son's in that business and they've come up with a hybrid. He's going in three days a week, not five. But in terms of mentoring, I mean, I think it's just an obligation of leadership. So I don't know if you saw, we're thrilled. We just got named to Modern Healthcare's best places to work for the first year this year that we were eligible to apply. And I think one of the reasons for that is we take it very seriously because we are remote. We actually have a structured program in terms of people having a body and it starts from the top all the way down. So I even have buddies with my own mentors on other boards, and I think it's important. And what I've found is I've had more people reach out to me that I'm proud of and happy that I've touched in their career, no matter where they are. And those are the conversations I'm having on a weekend or if I'm driving somewhere because it's a need and people are really longing for it. So I think it needs to be something that you ingrain in your culture and you make it important and as a leader, you make yourself available for people. So if somebody calls you and you're busy, text them back and say, hey, I'm busy right now, but I can talk to you tonight or I can talk to you for a half hour tomorrow. Um, I think if someone reaches out and they even if they don't leave a message, there's a reason they're reaching out. And I think it's about awareness. And we have an obligation to create that connectedness for people. Yeah, it's interesting. I was picked out early on in my career and people mentored me just all along the way. And so when I became a CIO for a health system, I just thought this was normal. And I identified like three or four people within the organization and started mentoring them. And what that looked like was, again, special conversations or special invites. I gave them opportunities for things. We had things like they would listen to, we were listening to the same podcast and we'd have conversations like this podcast and they'd have a conversation about it. I got them executive coaches. And by the way, these weren't just the VPs. These, this was identified people throughout the organization. I'm like, that person's there, but my gosh, that person is really going to move through the organization. And so I got them executive coaches and the, the, at that level, they typically didn't have an executive coach. It was such a huge game changer. They progressed even faster because of that access. Now, somebody's going to say something about fairness and whatnot. And quite frankly, I do not care because the reason they were selected is because they, first of all, they made themselves available. They, they came out and said, look, I want more from my career. So they made their, their desires known. They had a track record of success doing things that others around them would not do. And we're going to talk about that. Actually, let's talk about it now. He talks about work-life balance. And the question is, Gen Z workers in their first interviews are asking about work-life balance. What's the right way to think about this? I'm going to read this whole paragraph because it's it sets it up so well. Work-life balance is a myth. This is Galloway talking. Work-life mm -hmm. balance is a myth. I've taught 5,500 students at NYU, and he does a survey. Where do you mm -hmm. expect to be in five years economically? And something like 90% plus of them expect to be in the top 1% economically by the age of 30, right? I get it. It's great. But it means you're going to have no life other than work or very little life. I don't remember my 20s and 30s other than work. It cost me my hair. It cost me my first marriage. <laughs> and he goes on to say it was yeah. worth it. He's very provocative. He ends with, the, with this section with this. You can have it all. You just can't have it all at the same time. You can't have it all at once. If you expect to be in the top 10% economically, much less the top 1%, buck up two decades plus of nothing but work. That's my experience. And those people that I was mentoring, 
they, it wasn't a lot of, hey, I, I've already worked 40 hours this week. I'm sorry, Bill. I can't meet you for breakfast because I don't, I just don't have time to, it's people who are choosing to invest in themselves and saying, hey, you want to meet for dinner? Sure, I'll meet for dinner. You want to meet for breakfast? Sure, I'll meet for breakfast. Because at the end of the day, I mean, I made the decision. I was working 60 hour weeks easily. Right. And a lot of that was making myself available for the people I was mentoring and bringing along. And it's interesting, this whole idea of gens. I hear this work-life balance thing all the time. And I'm like, well, that's fine. If you like your salary, if you like your quality of life, if you, but don't come to me and say, oh my gosh, and I want to be in the top quartile of everyone doing my job. I'm like, it just, it's so rare that somebody who's limiting their availability mm-hmm. is going to get to that top 1%. And that's the point he's making. Yeah. I mean, I have this conversation even with my son all the time. You get what you give. You give more time. You make yourself more available to have the opportunities to talk to people, to learn. It's going to make a difference for you. And I agree with you, Bill. I mean, I think that we still have to pay attention to those people that are willing to go the extra mile, because if you're going to invest your time and I'm going to invest my time, we want to do it with those employees that want to do it for themselves. There are no victims. I'm a firm believer. The only victims are animals and little children. So don't be a victim, do something about it and get the connectedness. And I think we have the obligation to find ways for them to connect, particularly with so many of us working remotely. So we have to create the opportunity. We'll get back to our show in just a minute. Ever wonder how technology can reshape the patient experience? Join us for our next live webinar, The Patient Experience, A Technology Perspective on July 6th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. We're bringing together expert speakers to dive into the intersection of technology and healthcare. We're gonna explore topics on digital health tools and the impact of AI, blockchain, and other things around this. Whether you're a CIO or part of a healthcare IT team, we think you will gain practical insights from this discussion. Don't miss out on this conversation. Register today at thisweekhealth.com. We hope to see you there. Now, back to our show. Yeah, and anyone who's listening to this who's a staff member, you really have to step up and say, here's my expectations for the role or here's what I would like next in my role. A lot of times we sit back and it's interesting, we did a survey of our staff at St. Joe's and it's the question was pretty simple. It was, do you know what the next role is in your career trajectory or career path? And it was staggering. I was I was literally knocked back when I read it. It was like 70% had no idea what was next in their career. Yeah. And yeah. that was our fault. But it's also, I, I wanted to say to the employees, if you don't know what's next, why aren't you asking? Yeah. I mean, it's a it's about participation. And participation has to be a two-way street. That's the way I see it. And he was pretty clear in this article. He is provocative. I agree with you. But it made me think this article, I love this article. It made me think about a lot of things. It made me a little more comfortable. Everyone's talking about AI being a nuclear bomb. You know, he thinks it's going to be accretive. And so so do I. It's a fun time to be in healthcare and in, in startups that are focusing on AI. We need to go there. It, staff costs too much money. We have to find a hybrid approach and use AI the right way. So I think it's a balance. I think it's a balance and people have to participate. Yeah, it's rare that we do this, but we're going to end up doing one one article on this whole show. That's okay. I do want to hit this AI future. And the reason I like it is because we talked about workforce. We're talking about uh, career development. We're talking about mentoring. 
And now we're going to talk about the future of AI. And the article closes with this section. He's asked, what's your career advice for a young adult right now regarding AI? And he says he's an optimist, just like you. He's, it's going to be a creative. There's going to be mm-hmm. some things that there's going to be creative destruction. Some mm-hmm. roles are going to go away. Some new roles are going to be created. Right. That always happens. And he says, you should identify the areas that can be disrupted. He gives the example of Netflix in that. And your cable bill. Yeah. Yeah. He goes, your cable bill was going up to 120 bucks. And then all of a sudden Netflix comes out and you could stream it for $12 a month. And people are going, Hey, that that's a lot less than 120. It's a good alternative. And so it's, it's interesting. His conclusion, he says the most disruptable industry in the world as a function of prices increasing faster than inflation relative to the underlying innovation or lack thereof is hands down us healthcare. Yep. And he says, I haven't had health insurance in five years. And I tell people, I don't have health insurance. It's like, they, they, they look at him and say, you're a bad citizen and you're not a good dad. And he says, no, health insurance is nothing but a transfer of wealth from the poor who can't absorb a big shock to the rich who can. He says, this whole sector is ripe for AI disruption. And he believes there's going to be so many little AI driven healthcare companies that go after the American healthcare complex. And he said, if he was talking to somebody who's 22, 25, 30, and they were choosing where to invest their human capital, it's where there's going to be a reshuffling of shareholder value. And it's going to be AI driven startups in the healthcare space. That's where you live. You live in that. Yeah, we do live in that. I thought that was really interesting comment. I mean, it certainly shows the disparity in our country in terms of access to care, which is just really upsetting to me personally. But yeah, we live there and it's been really interesting because a couple of the other articles that we looked at that we didn't get to, it was all about making sure that the digital front door works and that you're testing that workflow. And when you live in an automation space, you have more opportunity to make sure that care is going to be available because you're testing the workflow and you're using AI to really make sure how we deliver care to patients and that it's happening effectively. So it was fun for me to read that because we live in that space. Of course, we all live in healthcare. We're in healthcare because we love you know, what we do. I mean, there's a reason I think most people stay in healthcare for for me, 30 years now, I'm really starting to date myself. And I even said me, me and all those other things, but <laughs> I, we're all in healthcare for a reason and it's a cool place to be. And uh, I was, I really enjoyed his article. Yeah. I, the challenge I have for CIOs who are listening to this is we've got to change our focus. Our focus is usually around the, the people closest to us. So it's us first, then it's our staff and our people, and then it's the community. And the reality is the community is suffering. Yep. They're suffering from surprise bills. The cost of healthcare keeps going up as a percentage of their income. They can't afford it. And they live in constant fear that there's going to be a significant event that causes them to lose everything that they've worked for. That's, that's what's going on out there. And we're sitting here going, I'm worried first and foremost about losing my job. Then I'm worried about reducing my staff. Then I'm reduce, worried about reducing staff in our health system where everything that we're doing is potentially leading to a significant amount of stress in the community. I'd reverse that completely, by the way. Mm-hmm. I would think first about the community and say, can we deliver the same quality of care, the same level of care with less cost? And less cost has to be labor related because it is the biggest cost in healthcare. And yes, some people 
will leave healthcare and have to find jobs outside of healthcare. And that is painful, but it's, you're trading pain for relief, right? You're trading pain amongst your staff or amongst the staff of the health system for relief out there. Now it's got to translate into, Hey, we've, we did a 20% reduction has to translate into lower costs of healthcare for the community. And when all it translates into is larger profits, that's not helpful at all. So hopefully, hopefully we make that progress. Well, I think it's all going to come full circle. And even as related to this article, I think the most innovative are going to win. And I think the staff that is a part of the most innovative organizations are going to win. And if you as an employee are willing to go on on the trajectory of innovation, even if it's a little bit scary, because you're going to have to do something different. You're going to use automation. You're going to use more AI to help do your job. I think those are the organizations and those are the staff. When we talked about that staff earlier, Bill, that are going to win. Everything's going to come full circle. And in the end, the community wins and we're going to be delivering better care. That's fantastic. Laura, you get the last word and I thank you for your time today. It's always great to hang out and talk through stories with you. Well, I just want to wish you a great weekend. I know you have another great event coming up with your roundtable CIOs. As you know, I've been to some of those. I think they're fantastic. And I hope you have a great weekend. We're thrilled to be participating. And I hope all your CIOs get to share a little tidbit and a best practice to make each other better. Yeah, I'm, I always learn something every time we get together. So looking forward to it. Thanks again, Laura. And that is the news. If I were a CIO today, I think what I would do is I'd have every team member listening to a show just like this one and trying to have conversations with them after the show about what they've learned and what we can apply to our health system. If you want to support This Week Health, one of the ways you can do that is you can recommend our channels to a peer or to one of your staff members. We have two channels, This Week Health Newsroom and This Week Health Conference. You can check them out anywhere you listen to podcasts, which is a lot of places. Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, you name it, you can find it there. You can also find us on YouTube. And of course, you can go to our website, thisweekhealth.com. And we want to thank our Newsday partners, again, a lot of them, and we appreciate their participation in this show. Cedar sinai Accelerator, ClearSense, CrowdStrike, Digital Scientists, Optimum, Pure Storage, SureTest, TauSite, Lumion, and VMware who have invested in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.